Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome uh, again to Really with Tom and Dave and our continuing discussion and conversation with the very great and, uh, and wonderful George Knapp, uh, who I'm delighted to know and have with us today. And Tom? Uh, I um, can't. How, how can I outdo that I intro? Know. That he is yeah. great. He is wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, and I brought bail money. And you brought yeah, bail money for Dave. Thank Dave, God. Dave <laughs> yeah. Foley, loose in Las Vegas. It's only yes. a matter of time. We, yeah. uh, yes. But, we I, but I don't travel with my good friend Scotch anymore. <laughs> uh, so I get into much less trouble than I used to. We saw a sort of police cordoning off the palms behind us here. So yeah, I think there was, yeah. yeah, there was helicopter worried traffic. About you. There okay. was radio conversations. You know. heard your back. Yeah. But um, I heard it on the police scanner. So. <laughs> he would know. He would know mm-hmm. what's going on in this town. Um, so, okay, we, we've talked about Bob Lazar, Area 51. You, you are now, you're neck deep in this, yes. in this topic. You're kind of catching it from all sides, but also have the story of probably the millennium, right? Um, yeah. You are both the foremost journalist covering the UFO story and that crazy UFO guy. Yeah. Depending you know, on, depending on who you talk to. to. Yeah. Both, both fit. Uh, so 19, right at the end of the 80s, 90s, after the whole Lazar thing, we did that series in 1989. We did a follow-up in 1990. Now I am fully the UFO reporter. Yes. Um, but I'm I'm frustrated because I know our government knows things. I've seen the paper trail that, that indicates they know this is real, that it's, it's a legitimate mystery. It's a possible national security threat and that they are lying to the public. But how do I pursue it, pursue it further and, and prove it? There was an article in the New York Times that caught my attention. It was about Lee Harvey Oswald. The KGB released its Lee Harvey Oswald file. And I thought, huh, there was a thaw in US, USSR relations. Glasnost and Perestroika mm-hmm. came in. The USSR itself fell. Change was in the air. And I'd, I'd seen that story. And it, in the back of my head, I had an idea. If the KGB would release those files, Maybe they have some UFO files that we could get access to. That was my thought. But I didn't know how to really go about it. I don't know anybody in Russia. And in 1993, 
Congressman Jim Bilbray, who had helped me, by the way, in the Lazar stuff. He had been behind the scenes uh, helping, trying to get records from federal agencies to, to verify Lazar, but he was a friend of mine. Uh, we know him really well. And he came to me and said, hey, I've got a friend of mine in, in the US. He's a Russian physicist named Dr. Nikolai Kapranov. He'd been traveling the country to give lectures about disarmament, nuclear disarmament issues at our national labs, place like Los Alamos and Livermore. He was coming to the end of his tour, had to go back to Russia, and he said, maybe you'd like to talk to him about UFOs. Well, that was very thoughtful, and yeah, hell yeah, I would. Um, and so I met with Nikolai, he came to Las Vegas. We went out to, for a, to meet for a beer and have a conversation, and I started asking him, you ever heard anything about UFOs? My thought was, the US government has had these secret studies. It is a matter of national security. Maybe the Russians have done their own studies, and maybe I could learn more from the Russians about what our government knows than we'll ever learn from our government itself. That was the idea. So I go into this meeting with Nikolai at a little bar in Las Vegas, and I ask him, hey, you ever heard any of your pals in the government talk about UFOs? He said, no, I don't think so. And I'm thinking, well, that's gonna be the end of this. Well, we had another beer, and then he was thinking about it. He says, you know, I had a friend who worked with KGB who did say something about UFOs one time. So I knew we had a, a chance The two-beer theory about, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. about disclosure. We had more than that, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the first rule of journalism. <laughs> Nikolai, uh, uh, Congressman Bill Bray had told me about his, his background. He had been, he was a physicist. He had been, um, helped train Russian cosmonauts how to spot American nuclear submarines from space. He had been, he was at that time, the national security advisor to Boris Yeltsin, who wow. was in charge. Wow. He had been a national security advisor to the Russian parliament. This is a guy who was dialed in. He's mm -hmm. an insider. Uh, so when he told me, I don't know, you know, I don't think I knew anybody, uh, I was really disappointed. And then he said, well, I might know somebody. At the time, I had taken a break from Channel 8. I was working for a company called Altamira, and we were going to produce a series of documentaries about UFOs. And uh, so we had a budget. And I said, hey, if we give you a stipend, um, do you think you could go find people? Uh, and the, the directions were this, people who are in a position to know, but have never spoken to media before. Not Western reporters, not Russian media, people who knew about it, but haven't been out there peddling a UFO story somewhere. And he said, I'll try. And over the course of the next seven and a half, eight months, he would send us these daily uh, updates on what kind of progress he was making. After about eight months, we went over there. We were ready to go. So I, myself, a guy named Brian Gresh, and uh, Bryant Blackburn, our photographer, went over and met with Nikolai. And wow, it, the, the, the gates opened. So it turns out that the Russian military had conducted what is likely the biggest UFO study in the history of the world. And for a 10-year period, from 1978 to 88, the, the order went out. To, that every unit of the vast Soviet military empire, Air Force, Army, everybody, uh, if you see a UFO, a strange ball of light, something odd in the air, any, anything related to these phenomena, that it has to be investigated, witness statements taken, evidence collected, and all of that stuff was sent to one central location at the Ministry of Defense. And the guy it was sent to, the head of the program, was a guy named Colonel Boris Sokolov. Maybe, certainly the one of the most important UFO sources and witnesses I've ever met, and maybe in the history of the world, because he had all this stuff. Thousands and thousands of reports were sent in. Um, a lot of it, when it was really sensitive stuff, it also went through the KGB. So I don't, I don't know how much material got diverted to them, 
but I know it, it was some of it. But still, it was a treasure trove of information. And so he's one of the first guys that Nikolai introduced us to in our trip to Russia. We went, we were there for 10 days. I think we were stopped by the cops seven different times. Our rooms were rifled through, our luggage was gone through. It was a really exciting time, regardless of UFO uh, matters, because uh, on the day we arrived, uh, Boris Yeltsin seized control of the broadcast airwaves. On the day we left, their parliament was surrounded uh, by, by mobs. Every single day we were there, there were these giant demonstrations in Red Square, pro-democracy people on one side, pro-Soviet people, communist he climbed people on, on the, the tank other. at one point, didn't he? Yeah, climbed that? on yeah. tanks, and there were tank, tanks and armored vehicles rolling through the streets. I mean, it was a tense time. Here's the Russians trying to embrace democracy, trying to embrace capitalism, and they're having some growing pains along the way because there are a lot of Russians who liked it the other way it was, you know, the strong paternal mm -hmm. government that takes care of them uh, when they were a, a massive superpower and not broken up into individual republics. So it was a fascinating time. Yeah. Um, and there we were in the, in the middle of it trying to ferret out UFO secrets. So Sokolov is the first guy that we talked to, and um, he welcomed us into his home. He was retired at that point. And I started asking him about this study, and he opened up on camera. Um, Ten-year-long study, thousands of cases, and he shared with us some really dramatic information about things that had happened during the study. For example, in 1982, there was a, a Russian ICBM base, nuclear missile base, in Ukraine. And they had an incident where uh, UFOs appeared over the base. One giant UFO that split into a couple of pieces flew around, performed incredible maneuvers, split apart, melded back together. I mean, they, the witness statements, I have them. The, these are the original witness statements from this event. And um, all the witnesses that of the statements I've got are all officers. They said that the UFO was over it for a couple of hours. And then uh, toward the end of this period, the launch control system for these missiles lit up. Something entered the launch control codes. The missiles were firing up and ready to go, and they couldn't shut it off. Mm. And they're mm. freaking out. Uh, hey, we're about to start World War III here, and there's nothing we could do to stop it. Now, you know, it's it's a centralized command system. They, they The officers would need permission to get this thing going anyway. It has to come from somewhere else. Well, it was coming from somewhere else, uh, and it wasn't from Moscow. Colonel Sokolov says they sent their, uh, uh, the way the incident happened, uh, after this thing is looks like these missiles are going to launch, the UFO goes poof, goes away, system goes back to normal, and they're all relieved that the world hadn't been turned into a burning cinder. Sokolov sends his team in. They take all this stuff apart, the machines, trying to figure out why it happened. It had never happened before. As far as I know, it hasn't happened since. They couldn't find any mechanical or electronic flaw. They concluded, according to the colonel, that this was a message from the UFOs that, uh, look, these are your most powerful weapons, but we're not all that impressed. We can mm -hmm. control them anytime we yeah. want. This is so, this is so insane. I'm sorry, but let's go. He is the, how high is he? He's is a the, colonel, but he's the head of yeah. this, this the, 10 year long study. Head of this study in yeah. the, in the in, Ministry of Defense. In the yeah. Ministry of Defense uh, officially as, you know, yes, he's retired, but he is, he's confirming these Incidents. These nuclear site yeah. events that have happened we, all yeah. around the United States. Which is, and, I was saying, like that one is particularly, it's kind of like a mirror image of what happened at Malmstrom yes. with Robert Salas, where, where as, as, as opposed to putting it into launch. They were disabled. Disabled, so that if there was a, a Soviet launch, 
there was nothing they could do at Malmstrom. Right. In the 1970s, we had similar, uh, a similar series of events, five of our nuclear bases along the U.S.-Canadian border. It could have been the Canadians, I think, uh, doing yeah. this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, five of our Canadian. bases along the U.S.-Canadian uh, border, the northern tier cases, yeah. they called it, were visited by UFOs, one right after another. And, you know, the witnesses would see them. Uh, the security fee- people were alerted. They would uh, scramble jets in a couple of cases and helicopters could never ca- catch these things, couldn't figure out who they were, but the missiles were taken offline. Mm-hmm. Um, if we had gone to war, we would not have had we would not have had these missiles to use. So it's a very serious matter. <laughs> yeah. If you think UFOs are not yeah. a national security matter, that, that pretty is, much makes the case. Yeah. So in Russia, they're, they're, they're turned on. They're turned on here. They're turned off. Right. And it seems like are they the pro-Russian. The What's the uh, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. what is, uh, side that's are they good, on? That's a good question. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, he told me about that incident, then about some other things. He said, you know, we had thousands of cases. I, why were you doing this study? Was it just for scientific knowledge, curiosity? He said, no, we we had a very practical reason for launching it. We knew that these UFOs can do things that we can't do, and that you can't do. And we figured that if we could figure out how they fly, how their what their propulsion is that we would have an advantage over you in stealth, that we, you know, yeah. you, it could be there and invisible to radar and do all kinds of things. So they were trying to do what we have done over the years is figure out the technology and see if you can duplicate it. So that in, in the course of that 10 year study, he said there were 40 different incidents where Russian warplanes were sent after the UFOs. And in, in 30s, there were 40 where the Russian jets were scrambled and went after UFOs around the Moscow area and other places. In 37 of those cases, the UFOs just took off and left them in the dust. In three of the cases, though, the Russian planes crashed. They were knocked out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Two of those pilots died. He said after the second, uh, the third crash and the second pilot died, the order went out across Russia, leave them alone. If you see a UFO, do not engage. And that I think that order is still in effect now. We talked to uh, Colonel uh, Igor Moltsev. Uh, he was the commander of the Russian Air Defense Forces when I went back to Russia, which we'll talk about in a minute. And he had said that he's the guy that gave that order. So, I mean, these are pretty dramatic things. <laughs> That's great. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. I was able to uh, convince Colonel Sokolov uh, to allow me access to the, some of the files. And we got a lot of that original material, including these were the original uh, witness statements filed in the Ukraine incident, if you wanted to check those out. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll go over these both, a little uh, later. Yeah. yeah, we're going to do a whole show yeah. and tell yeah. Uh, yeah. On, on, on this stuff. That's uh, Yeah, but I'm going to take a peek. Right? I just, I'm just yeah. trying to, like the equivalent, I mean, maybe if, uh, I guess, Kirkpatrick maybe came forward and announced that our nuclear sites had been turned on and off and they had been messing around with, like, maybe that would be a sort of official government equivalency yeah. to yeah. something like this. But that is colossal disclosure from the other superpower on Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, in, that was he was the first guy that we, we talked to. We also, we got a, a, a wealth of information from other Russian physicists and uh, people in their military programs talked to a guy who was part of their their Star Wars he program. He right. lived in a in a village that in a one of those secret villages that doesn't appear on a map. He'd never spoken to a reporter before, let alone a Western reporter. He had a little tabletop uh, model. I wonder what the heck is this little blue plastic thing? It was like a mini laser. He put a, a razor blade on top of it and showed me how it worked and it burned a hole right through this razor blade. And he said, this is what we call the weapon of the aliens. And when he said, we were trying to build one of these things. I think they were still trying to build one of these things. He told us about, he had been part of the Russian space program. And he, from the earliest days that the Russians had these satellites up there before we did. And then you know, 
were well in advance of the American space program. So we'd see these things coming in and out of the atmosphere. They were coming from somewhere out in deep space into the earth, not the other way around. He said, we know that you eventually, you Americans eventually saw them as well, that you had certain facilities that were built just to track these kinds of objects. Again, you know, the purpose of the trip was to try to find out what American government right. knew. And it was clear that the Russians had been spying on us and on our media sources to collect information about UFOs, as I'll get into in a minute. Um, so then we met this guy, a scientist, who had, uh, he had been uh, the protege to the Korolev, the father of the Russian rocket program, a space program. Korolev had been called in by Joseph Stalin in the 1940s, in the late 40s, to ask about Roswell. And he said, Stalin assigned him, figure out what this was out there, because they had spies all around Roswell. Of course they would. It was the only atomic bomb wing in the group, in the world. Yeah, and so the they, most important military base in the world yeah, at that time. at the time. So yeah, they had a lot of assets on the ground in that area, and they heard about the crash and the hubbub about the crash that had been in the newspapers. So Stalin assigned Korolev to figure out what it was. Korolev comes back in a couple of days, collects information from Russian intelligence and says, well, it doesn't appear that it was an American craft, and we know it wasn't ours. It's from somewhere else. And that Stalin told him, yep, that's what we concluded as well. I get this from Korolev's um, protege, this physicist who had taught at Moscow Institute of Aviation, I guess it is. And, uh, and we met some other scientists who had studied what we would call landing site trace cases. So um, places where UFOs are seen by witnesses, they land, they leave impressions in the ground, they burn soil, they ra radiation, things of that sort. There was a guy named Simakov who was a government scientist, a, a biologist. His specialty was digging into the soil for microorganisms at these landing sites. So he, he found that in time, he could figure out what the craft looked like that set down, at least the bottom of the craft, by finding where microorganisms did not exist. Because they would, for, for some reason, they would leave the soil. They, they would no longer be in the soil where these things sat down. So he had these elaborate patterns of what the bottom of the craft looked like. Wow. And he had some of these little pieces of the, of the material that they found in the soil, these perfect little round, opaque, uh, circular things uh, look like they're made out of glass, little glass balls. Uh, and he gave me some. He called them cosmic sperm, and he gave me about half the world's known supply of cosmic sperm that I brought yeah. back uh, to, to be tested, which we'll get into later. That would be a first for our podcast, yeah, for, <laughs> for sure. Um, I'm curious, see. does that have anything to do, just sort of off, like slightly off topic, to the Avi Loeb spherules that he was well, finding on the bottom of the Well, it kind of like it, but no, those okay. are metallic, and these look like they're, they're, Got they're clear glass. Mm -hmm. may, may I just ask a question about, so just to confirm, they... Russian intelligence was spying on the U.S. military sites, of course, makes sense. But in so doing, we're, we're finding out more about our UFO program than any U.S. Disclosure, disclosure was happening yeah. to the American public. Russians knew a lot more about what our government yeah. knows than the government has told us. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, wow. and there's a pretty considered effort to depict Roswell as this crazy hick town with some kitschy museums yeah. and that no one should really think too seriously about. And as people do forget about the fact that, yeah, this was the, the only place on Earth where nuclear weapons existed. Yeah. And, you know, the flying saucer story didn't come from saucer nuts. It came from the U.S. military. They mm -hmm. put out that release and said, yeah, we got a flying saucer. Yeah. We got a flying disc. Was there a catalyst? Like 1978, you said that 10-year study began. Was there any catalyst event? Yes. Or was... Yes. 
There was an incident over Petrozavodsk. So that's one of their main missile sites and spaceports where they send stuff up and uh, something appeared in the sky. Uh, they later explained it away. They tried to explain it away as a missile te test that went awry. But behind the scenes, the Ministry of Defense, which knows about all their missile tests, knew it was something else. And that's what started the study. And it went on for 10 full years, like I said. And I got several hundred pages of that material and was able to bring it back. There was a second study that came after that one called Thread 3. And this one was, it was really a much more um, uh, defi definitive about the nature of the threat, that this is from somewhere else. And we know it, and the Americans know it, and they were trying to analyze how to duplicate the technology. So Thread 3, uh, we brought back some of that material as well, and I met the guy who was in charge of that at the time. And he wouldn't go on camera, though. It was a... It was a cool scene like out of a movie. I met him at a dark alleyway and he's got a trench coat and a hat pulled down and sunglasses and a briefcase and uh, and I got this material <laughs> and uh, and brought it back. Um, and you're saying what has happened to my yeah. life here that I'm like this is good. Yeah. this is getting pretty yeah. crazy. Well, it was it was kind of hairy, you know. We we were pulled over a bunch of times. There were people going through our stuff in a, in the hotels when we were out during the day and um, we were obviously under some kind of observation but uh, we had to pay our way out of an arrest one, one mm -hmm. time, one of those incidents. Like bribes? Bribes. Yeah. Well, paying tickets kind of on the spot. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. Um, so it, it was just really exciting with all the tumultuous activity in the streets. Uh, but also we were getting this amazing material. Um, I, so I come back with all this stuff. We, we put out some of the release. I shared some of it with Robert Bigelow. Mm. And some of it went to the U.S. government because... As an adjunct to the UFO trip, while we were there, I spent almost as much time with their remote viewing program. So they had a psychic spy program. There was a Russian general in charge of this program. And he had he wanted the world to know about it. He wanted it to be out in the open before something happened to stick it back in the shadows. He felt it was for the benefit of humanity. And so he introduced me to his remote viewers. And he had recruited them like housewives. Uh, women that he would see in a supermarket because he wanted to demonstrate that the psychic spy remote viewing type technology or protocols could be taught to anyone. And so we spent a day with the, the remote viewers and they were pretty amazing. They had a, a medical intuitive who could size you up, look, at, look, at, look you up and, and get some ideas about what your health situation was. Uh, you could figure out some of mine were uh, just by looking at me, but she had some information. I don't know how she got it. So I'm just curious, They in the files you had, they talked about the capacity, the technical capacity, that they wanted to mirror the propulsion systems. The Russians were interested in, in the a spa, a arms race with us on this kind of technology. Did they have any notions of what it was, who it was, what they wanted, or anything like that? Well, the SDI scientists had said, this is the weapon of the aliens. They called them aliens. Uh, and the remote viewer, uh, they had a different term. They called it the cosmic intelligence that they would have these psychic experiments where they would project their consciousness out and they kept running into something else that was out there, some other kind of intelligence that they would interact with. Mm -hmm. I don't know the nature of that interaction, what kind of information was transmitted, but um, they thought it was real and it's something other than us. Mm -hmm. And that's a program obviously that mirrors the program that the US was doing at Stanford and- Yeah, and, and uh, like I said, the general wanted me to tell people in our government about this because he wanted to get in contact. He just didn't want this to go back into the shadows. Was that a glasnost thing? Yeah, it yeah, was. Okay, yeah. so it's like there's this yeah. moment could only happen when it happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, 
It was an amazing time. I there's one image that I have in my mind I've talked about before as we were driving uh, along. There was a, a Russian sitting with this wooden box with a sign on it, and he was sitting in like a mud bog, and he's got a sign. He's selling something. And I asked our, our guide, hey, uh, what's, what's going on there? He's selling used motor oil. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, they want it so bad. You know, they, they want uh, what we have. They want to embrace freedom and capitalism and all that. And this guy is giving it his shot. Hasn't learned the, lo the uh, lesson about location being important yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a, we got to meet nothing but friendly Russians who are so much like us, who, you know, they don't have a lot. You know, they were, you know, there was area era of long lines and shortages and things of that sort, but they were trying to embrace it. And at the same time, a lot of people wanted to shut the door on that and return to the old ways. Yeah. Um, and also, I guess, point out that this is a, a, a period of thaw in international relationships, but still carrying this stuff out of the country was risky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You weren't you were you, they weren't going to let you just wander out with this stuff. You well, were, you were taking a risk and taking this stuff away. At least the <laughs> the uh, documents I had had. Um, I don't know if this is standard now, but the documents that I w was able to obtain they had a classification stamp on the top page on these documents. And after that, nothing, you know? So if you separated the top pages from the rest of it, it's just- Doesn't paper. count, doesn't yeah. count. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I carried the stuff out in my suitcase, um, most of the documents in a suitcase. And uh, I had some tins of caviar in there too, because you weren't supposed to take caviar out. That was mm -hmm. kind of like a little diversion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. They they're learning me. the lessons they well. They caught you know, going through one of the checkpoints, caviar, not allowed. Um, let me take it anyway, and didn't even look at the documents. But I, I carried, uh, I carried out the other pages in another way. And uh, if I'd been caught, yeah, I'd, I'd still be there. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever get a call from a colonel friend who was like, George? Did you happen to? <laughs> I mean, was there anything left in your books or anything that was there ever blowback from from the, uh, the documents? Um, not from the Russians. I mean, uh, my Russian friends got some blowback for sure, you know, because when I came back, I wrote an article about it. I did a public presentation or two yeah. and, and shared some of the information, uh, some of the information I gave to the government because the Russian general had asked me to do that. And I, I felt it was necessary. It was a good thing to do anyway, which was very helpful to me further down the road because it, it gave me an in with uh, some other players that, in this mystery and, and established a, a bonds of trust. Um, but, um, you know, for the Russians who had helped us after their names are made public, they were, uh, they were worried what was mm. going to happen. Nikolai, who had been my friend for a couple of years at this point, um, had said, look, if this had happened five years ago, we'd all be in prison. If it had happened 10 years earlier, we would have been shot because the, the pro-communist um, newspapers came after him. Once it filtered back oh. to Russia that I had made these statements and identified some of the witnesses, they were attacked. And then the stories started changing. Um, you know, suddenly Sokolov became a ufologist, not a colonel. Mm. And, um, and, and there was a spin put on what he had said. Oh, no, we never saw any evidence of aliens or UFOs. It was really my hobby. Um, 96, I go back. And everything had changed. And the people who had talked to us before would not talk to us again, including Nikolai, uh, who had, was a friend of mine. Uh, they were scared, and, and rightfully so, because by that point, the, what we now know as the Putin folks, the right. former KGB guys, had taken they, control. Yeah. The, the mob, uh, organized crime, had, had seized control of a lot of their in, industries. Putin was on the rise. Was Yeltsin out yet? It was, Yeltsin, was, Yeltsin was out by then, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, 
it looked like, and it, and now we know Russia had gone back to the Russia that we used to know. Mm-hmm. When you must be, you must have gotten used to this, like, oh, I'll tell you this story, blah, blah, blah. And then the silent treatment, I mean, are you saying like, oh, here we go again? Or are you, did you, was this one particularly shocking to you? It was, it was surprising and disheartening too, because I, I liked those people. I, I liked them. And I was sad to see what was happening to their country come, you know, that the dark forces of darkness taken over again. Right. Uh, so I went back in 96 at the request of a, a documentary crew from Discovery in London. Um, they wanted to retrace my steps. In between, by the way, ABC News had come to me. They heard about the, the nuclear missile incident and the files. Said, hey, we'd like to have you go back and you can come with us. Let us do some preliminary work. Can you give us your contact information? I said, okay, all right. And they went over there and did a whole series on it and forgot that they had forgot where they got it from. They just pretended like they discovered this on their own. Uh, CBS uh, also expressed an interest. I think it was 48 hours. And their first stop was the Ministry of Defense, which told them, we never had a secret UFO program. Yeah. And that was enough for them. They quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this discovery crew from, uh, from the BBC wanted to go. I went with them. And we ran into roadblocks immediately. The people who had all talked to us before would not go back on camera mm-hmm. again. So we came up with some other things to do. We got that uh, General Maltsev, not Colonel, General Maltsev. He did go on camera with us and talked about UFOs over Moscow and how they issued the order to leave them alone. Uh, and then we took a side trip to Vladivostok, which is like the Wild West. I mean, it's 10 time zones, uh, nine or 10 time zones. We flew out of a blinding snowstorm like it should not be allowed. It cannot possibly, you can't mm-hmm. have a, a plane f- flying in this storm. It's the same storm, by the way, that same system knocked the plane of Ron Brown, our Commerce Secretary, oh, yeah. killed him. Oh, Same storm. Oh, my God. Um, so we flew to Vladivostok. It was, it was a, a great cultural experience without the UFO stuff because, you know, I remember them, people are, it's like a scene out of a, a a bus traveling through Central America, everything except for the chickens and chicken coops, people smoking and drinking and belching and farting. And it was just a crazy time. The Russian stewardesses, flight attendants, they brought us um, chicken and white wine for dinner, no, red wine for dinner. And then nine hours later, we're still on this flight and they bring us chicken and red wine or the other colored wine for (laughs) breakfast. Um, We go to Vladivostok, which was Wild West. And they, we go to this hotel. It's like a bunker. They have uh, armed security in there. You know, it's so far from Moscow, it might as well be another country. Yeah. It was a seaport, uh, a navy port, a fishing port, a mining, uh, rough tumble town. And if you wanted to go into town to look around, they said we'd have to send our armed security with you. We go to go to Vladivostok in order to travel to an even nicer garden spot called Dalnagorsk get in this old helicopter that they assured us Mikhail Gorbachev had flown in. Looked like it shouldn't have been able to fly. Yeah, 150 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we fly at treetop level again through these storms, thought I was going to die, to Dalnagorsk, which is this lovely little spot right next to North Korea and Red China mm. out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, very rustic sort of a town, but it had been the site of an incident uh, in the 80s. It was sort of the Russian Roswell it was a place called Height 611, Hill 611, where an object had been flying over, over the town, down the gorse, and then blew up and crashed. And the, the remnants, the metallic pieces, were all over this hill. So there was a scientist named Dr. Dejilny, who was with their National Academy of Sciences. He happened to live there, had a very uh, 
basic lab, and he had made the, the trip up there to collect these samples of, of materials, strange metals and uh, with, with strange uh, metallic webbing kind of a thing, and, uh, and rare combinations, rare earth elements, a lot of really strange, weird uh, stuff. And he said, for days after this thing crashed in the hill, these other things appeared in the sky, uh, orbs, saucers, shining lights down as if they were looking for this thing, where, the, where this thing had crashed. Um, he collected all these samples, sent it to the government, sent it to a, uh, their national academies, never got any of it back, but he thought that was uh, really exotic materials of unknown origin. It was like a UFO. And he shared, he gave me some samples of uh, not the metallic uh, stuff, but the, the rocks and, and trees had all burned and he gave me some of those samples, and uh, the rocks had been made made magnetic after whatever it was that. So those are some of the samples I brought back. Um, we had I gave some of these to the Atomic Testing Museum. They had a little exhibit uh, for a while here in Las Vegas, and and showed some of it, including the the little spheres that we brought back from the landing site, the cosmic yeah, the sperm. cosmic sperm. And never, it, never miss an opportunity to say cosmic sperm. Yeah, no, okay. no, no yeah. never. I um, did a bunch of, I did yeah. some tests when I brought back the cosmic sperm to see if they were in fact organic. Uh, I sent them to a guy named Dr. Jack Kasher at uh, University of Nebraska. He said no, and and uh, they they were not organic. They weren't seeds of any kind. Um, they were they looked like glass. Uh, I gave some to uh, Dr. Harry Fector, who looked at them under electronic microscope, and it was clear they were manufactured why they were manufactured, these tiny, perfect little spheres, uh, orangish in color, why they were in the dirt at two different UFO landing sites, don't know. Um, never did figure out what these things were, but I also gave some to a fledgling organization called NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. That had been set up, uh, Robert Bigelow was one of the first guys to call me out of the blue in 1989 after the Lazar story had aired. and he. Hold for Robert Bigelow. I'd never heard this name. And mm -hmm. uh, I, okay, I'm holding. Hey, that was really good. That was good stuff. Uh, I'd like to help you, give you some support to continue your work. I said, financial? I, I, yeah, I can't do that. I'm, I'm working for the TV station, but you know, um, I appreciate the offer. And then he wanted to meet Bob Lazar. I said, well, I'll see. He's pretty private. We'll see how it works. Bigelow is not a man who is very patient. So I guess he hired some private detectives to track down Lazar and, and they arranged to meet and so I went and met with them, and we became friends, got to know each other, and that proved incredibly fortuitous later. So when I came back from Russia with this material, I got it translated. May I some ask, of it. was sure. there any biological stuff at this crash site, this hill, or was it was the it was no, these materials all metallic? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so when I when I had come back from the first trip, I told Bigelow about it, and eventually gave him some of this that was later incorporated into the OSAP program, which I'm jumping way ahead. We'll, we'll okay. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, they all flows um, together, yeah. But it, it was helpful to me that I had, I had done that. So uh, let's see, we're trying to figure out what all this material is. Bigelow creates NIDS, started in 95, it actually got going in 96. They invited me to be the first speaker at the first meeting of their science advisory board, and I made a presentation about the Russian stuff. Now I'm looking at this room, it's an incredible group of people gathered around this table. Dr. Edgar Mitchell, sixth man to walk on the moon. Uh, Senator Harrison Schmidt, the last man to walk on the moon. Um, Jacques Vallée, Dr. Kit Green, Dr. Hal Putoff. Uh, an amazing, astonishing group of big brainiac people 
who had agreed to put their reputations and their careers on the line in order to dig into strange phenomena. Bigelow had tried to give support to UFO organizations. He had provided money to individual researchers so they can do their work. They, you know, not a lot of money in this field, mm -hmm. despite what people think. And he had tried to give it to MUFON and the other two major UFO organizations a million bucks and said, look, all you got to do is get along. And of course they couldn't. Mm -hmm. So he gave up and created his own organization, NIDS, National Institute for Discovery Science, gathered this amazing science advisory board, put together some other people. Er uh, Colonel John Alexander was there. Eric Davis was eventually hired. Colin Kelleher was hired. And there would be like a rapid response team. You have a UFO flap somewhere or an outbreak of cattle mutilations. They'd throw them, get them on a jet, boom, go there and investigate boots on the ground. What was Bigelow's, just briefly, what was his background? I mean, that he, I, I was to learn, uh, he was a billionaire, uh, but he had kept very private. All of his holdings were private. He didn't have any public filings. In he Nevada, he wasn't some he had the, sort of... Mm -hmm. No, okay. he had had uh, budget suites. He owned a lot of land. He owned more hotel rooms in Las Vegas than the MGM had. Uh, their, their weekly rentals, which filled a niche because uh, Las Vegas was growing so like a bat out of hell for 20 straight years, construction teams would come in and there was a lot of movement of populations. People would come in, try the community, decide if they're going to stay here or not. And so it was a, he really struck it big by having that in this state and a couple of other states. And then later he would f create Bigelow Aerospace. He put $500 million of his own money into creating an aerospace program of his own, inflatable habitats, um, things that could be, were structurally sound, that could be collapsed, launched into space uh, where you don't have to shoot something real big and heavy. And, uh, and it would create more space in space for living space, for labs, things of that sort. And he made incredible progress. There is one of his modules is on the ISS right now. Amazing. Mm -hmm. He had two other launches before that, but uh, this was well before that. Sure. And so in 96, he creates NIDS and I get to speak to that group and I made my presentation about the Russian material. So it planted a seed with some of these folks who had been insiders in the U.S. government and would be again later down the road. And from and and from this, I assume, becomes your connection to what I'm obsessed with, Skinwalker Ranch. Yes. Yeah. And also a link to Harry Reid. So to backtrack for a moment, yeah. Harry Reid was the first person I told about our UFO project in 1989 outside of our newsroom. First person. Was he mayor at that time? Uh, he was a U.S. senator. U.S. senator at that time. Okay. I had met him in 82. I covered his first campaign for the House, and I covered his second campaign in 84. And then his first run for the Senate was in 86. So I was a familiar face in the crowd, and mm -hmm. I had interviewed him a bunch of times. And I just thought he was uh, very uh, interested in national defense issues, had been a big supporter of Nellis, I figured he'd have an interest in Area 51, so I told him about it. I said, hey, uh, I, I met him in, a, in his limo. He said, I'll give you 30 minutes. I'm driving to the airport to fly back to Washington. You can tell me what you need to tell me. And I told him. And I was worried, you know, he's going to kick me out of, the, out of the car. There's flying saucers out in the Nevada desert. He says, I'm really interested in that. Keep me appraised. So I did. And that started a conversation, a private stealth conversation that we had and continued for the rest of his life. And it really was a big deal because in 96, I speak to- Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To this group uh, of um, scientists at the Science Advisory Board, first person, again, I told after I left there was Harry Reid. Because I knew what would happen. He'd want to get invited, and he did. And that proved prophetic later down the road because it introduced him to Bigelow. Bigelow, who'd spent more money investigating UFOs than any person in the history of the world, millions and millions of dollars, and who was just about that time uh, embarking on something else, which became Skinwalker Ranch. Reed attended, asked for permission to attend the next meeting of the Science Advisory Board. He did. He was blown away. And he was really hooked by that point. He had helped me behind the scenes on a number of different things over the years. And I kept him in the loop as well. But I was pretty sure that he'd be really interested in this, and he was. And it established a real bond with he and Bigelow that really uh, made history later on. And that's why he's mm -hmm. on, well, one of the reasons why he's on your Rushmore of, of yeah. uh, the UAP Rushmore mm -hmm. yeah. that would be, yeah, Harry Reid and his. Was, was Bigelow an enthusiast because of your work, obviously that had an impact, but was did he have a catalyst event? Was there something that- Yeah, there were things in his family. So his his grandparents had seen uh, flying saucers uh, in the Las Vegas Valley here up near Mount Charleston. And then he had had some experiences, sort of vague memories as, as a kid mm. of, of presence. And so he always had an yeah. interest in it. Now if it's his grandparents, what era, Grand like, what era would that have been that they'd have seen? So this is 50s. In the 50s, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was always in the back of his mind. He had an interest in it. And he's also, when he created NIDS, it was, it was two goals. It was to find out, are we alone in the universe? And what happens to us when we die? Does part of us oh, live right. on? Is mm -hmm. there consciousness that lives on? Which after a while, the UFO aspect of that sort of came to dominate NIDS and the consciousness part went away. But now it's come full circle because Bigelow has the Bigelow Institute of Consciousness Studies, where he sort of moved the UFO question to the side burner, consciousness is on the front burner. Um, so Bigelow and Reed uh, got together. That same year, 96, is when Bigelow hears about this haunted ranch in Utah. It's an area where had in the Uinta Basin has been a hotbed of UFO activity for as long as humans have been there. Native Americans, the Mormon settlers, maybe the Franciscan priests who came through in the 1770s had seen strange things in the sky. There was a book in the 1970s by Dr. Frank Salisbury, who was a at the University of Utah or Utah State, uh, about the Uinta Basin. He called it the Utah UFO Display. And he had these files that had been collected by a guy named Junior Hicks, a local science teacher in, in the Uinta Basin, who had educated generations of kids 
uh, every kid who lived there, who grew up to be adults, had gone through his science classes. So when they're seeing UFOs, which a lot of them did, it's hard to find anybody who hasn't uh, there. They would tell Junior Hicks about it, and he started collecting them and 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 getting out in his battered old truck and driving to the sites and and getting information and interrogating the witnesses and getting descriptions of the craft. He put all this stuff, thousands of cases, into his files. Frank Salisbury comes in and writes a book based on those files, which takes maybe 400 of the best ones, and it was a bestseller. J. Allen Hynek did the uh, the forward. So the activity had been going on a long time, but the ranch story uh, kind of stands out. It not only was a hotbed of UFO stuff, but other weird things as well. The rancher felt that maybe the government was trying to get him off his land by scaring him because his cattle started being killed and there were a lot of really weird activities that we can get into There's in a just moment. a farm family yeah. on this place. Yeah. There's just... still, yeah, okay. it's still. So th this ranch uh, was an epicenter of weird stuff in a larger arena of where weird stuff had been happening for a long time. But it seemed to be especially concentrated on this property, 480 acres at the time. And it was surrounded by uh, the Ute Reservation, this gigantic reservation. There was an island of private property in the middle of it. And the Utes would tell their members, don't go there. Um, it wasn't a strict edict, but they advised against it. As I learned on my first visit there, uh, that it was the path of the skinwalker. Now, this is years later. Uh, Bigelow buys the property in 96. He finds his ranch family in dire straits. So they had moved in 20 months earlier. And it was their dream property. Uh, the father was a college-educated expert in uh, hybrid cattle and in artificial insemination, a very high-end cattle, uh, Semental, I think they're called. The, the wife was a vice president of a bank. The two kids, teenage kids, straight-A students, just a really great, solid family that moved on this property and figured that's where they're gonna stay the rest of their life. By 20 months later, when Bigelow arrived, he and Colonel Alexander went to meet him, that family was all sleeping on the floor every night in one room together because they were scared of what mm -hmm. was happening. Um, you know, the strange things that happen, I'm not gonna say it's poltergeists, but it's like we would equate like poltergeist type activity, trickster stuff, really mm -hmm. weird. The wife would go shopping, for groceries. She comes home, gets enough food for a couple of weeks, takes all the stuff out of the bags, puts it in the shelves, walks out of the room, comes back, and all the stuff's back in the bags. She'd take a, a shower in the morning. She locks the door. She has a, a towel and a hairbrush on the counter, takes a shower, gets out. The door's still locked, and the towel and the hairbrush are gone. Uh, Dad's out in the field using a post hole digger, digging some holes uh, for fencing. He stops to take a, a a sip of water and wipe his brow, turns around, and this post hole digger, this heavy piece of equipment's gone. And they found it up in a tree a couple weeks later. Um, you know, all kinds of weird mm -hmm. stuff like that. Cords of wood being moved like two inches. Or, yeah. you know, and then they, they were seeing, I'm not even telling you the wolf story, but um, mm -hmm. so they started seeing these orbs, uh, little white orbs that would flit around in the, in the trees, seemed to be intelligently controlled, not insects, they were something else. Then they started seeing red orbs that would go among their cattle and scare the hell out of these cattle, sometimes stampeding them. Then they started seeing these blue orbs. They were bigger than a softball. And they looked like they, when it got up close, they looked like they were made out of glass with a blue swirling liquid inside. And these things would scare the hell out of people. I mean, it would somehow touch the, the fight or flight impulse in your brain, 
literally drove people to their knees with, with they were so scared and then things go away and they'd go back to normal. It, it was just really strange stuff. Then they started seeing regular UFOs, um, things that looked like stealth fighters with Christmas lights around them that would just float silently over the ranch. Um, big sombrero shaped uh, objects that would fly right into the ridge, this big sandstone ridge that, that abuts the property that they came to be known as the path of the skinwalker. Uh, they'd see those things. They f saw a, what was called like a chupa, which is what people in Brazil used to see, a big refrigerator looking thing. Um, it was down on the end of the property. Uh, the, the father and son saw it down there. They th thought it was a Winnebago. Now there's only one way into this ranch, one way in, one way out. And they saw it down on their third homestead. They're wondering, how the hell did that Winnebago get down there on our property without us seeing it go by? And uh, they start walking down towards the Winnebago. And this Winnebago with lights on is coming toward them. And then it goes, it raises up over the trees and poof, it's gone. Yeah, Wasn't a Winnebago. Yeah, uh, They're seeing all these things and are kind of freaked out, especially yeah. with the other things that are going on. They start hearing heavy footsteps, like heavy boot prints outside their windows at night. Then they start seeing shadowy figures peeking in at night. And they're kind of freaked out until it gets inside the house. They hear it inside the house. They wake up at night, and it's the bottom of their bed. Um, and it really was messing them up. Uh, you know, the wife lost her job. Uh, the kids were on the verge of, of uh, failing out of school. Their rancher was, tr you know, traveling across the ranch at night with his gun trying to shoot whatever government agents were trying to scare him off his property. They were messed up. They had... Uh, the mutilations of their their animals. So at first it would be a cow that would walk out into a snowbank. You could see the trail, the tracks going out, and it was gone. It's just gone. Like the wolf, the bulletproof mm -hmm. wolf that they saw the first day they were there on the property. Um, it had, you know, they shot it. Wait, what bulletproof yeah. oh, wolf? Oh, Wait. oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, listen, whatever I've, I, I need the whole skin, the bulletproof wolf. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Come on now. All right. What? This is day one of the the uh, family moving on. To, we call them the Gormans. That's not their name. The real name has come out, but we promised them we wouldn't use their name yeah. uh, in our in our book, Colum and I, that we wrote later, uh, and we we're sticking to that promise. But on their first day of moving onto the property, again, it's their dream property. They have some calves that they've unloaded in a corral that's right by the main ranch house. The the ranch house is on Homestead One. There's Homestead Two and Homestead Three. Yeah. They had previously been three ranches that were combined into one. Homestead One is where the, the house is and the corral. So they have these calves in the corral. They're unloading stuff. The rancher, his dad, the kids, the wife. They see a, an animal of some sort out across the pasture uh, these, by this brush line. And it's big. It looks like a dog. They think, wow, that's a really big dog. And then as it gets closer, it starts meandering toward them. They can see it's a wolf. This is the largest wolf they've ever seen. I mean, eventually when it gets closer, they figure the back of that wolf came up to the middle of the rancher's chest. It starts coming towards them. And they figured this has got to be somebody's pet wolf Yeah, because it's, mm -hmm. it's docile. It's got its head down. It walked among the family and they remember it had rained that day and it was the smell of a wet dog. You know, that smell. Mm -hmm. The wolf is around them. They're, wow, this is amazing. Somebody's pet wolf is floating around here. And, uh, and then one of these calves, most of the calves were backed up against the corral, scared. One of them made the mistake of sticking its snout out through the bars, and this wolf leaps and grabs it. Uh, leaps high in the air, grabs this thing, chomps down on its snout, and starts trying to pull it out of the out of the corral. 
The rancher jumps into action. I think it's an ax handle or a baseball bat. He grabs it and starts beating this thing on the back. It doesn't flinch. It doesn't make a, a sound. He's beating and it's not making any difference at all. His son goes to his truck. He's got a 357 powerful handgun in the, in the glove box and he brings it over to dad and dad fires a couple rounds right into this beast. It doesn't phase it at all. It's not bleeding. It's not making a noise. The father comes for, with the 30-06, a hunting rifle, and he pops two more shots into it. The last shot went right in the chest and blew a chunk of fur and flesh off this thing and it falls on the ground. And that's when the, the uh, wolf let go of the calf and starts ambling away, not, not in distress, not, not making any noise. It's been shot five times. It starts heading back toward the, the brush area where it had come from. The rancher and his son are looking at each other. We can't let this wounded wolf go roaming around on the property. They grabbed another hunting rifle and went after it. And they go through the brush and it's not hard mm -hmm. to track it because the, this wolf is gigantic and it's leaving tracks in the mud that are you know, two inches deep. It, they follow it through the brush and it goes, it goes out. The tracks lead into this clearing over by a stream on, on one side of the property and the, their tracks go right out in the middle of this clearing and then they stopped. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's gone, poof, gone. They go back to wonder what the hell are we going to say to the rest of the family on this? This is day one. Of day the, one. The, day one. They go back to the rest of the family. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. We just kind of have to move on. They found this piece of flesh that had fallen off of the fur and it smelled like rotten meat. Now, what the hell do you make of that? A, a bulletproof wolf that smells like that's rotten meat. Right. Yeah. They tried to just put it out of their heads. And then the poltergeist stuff started happening. Then the shadowy figures, then the orbs, then the saucers and other UFO craft. And then something started, you know, carving up their cattle. Yeah. Killed a bunch of their cats, carved up a bunch of cattle. Some were really dramatic incidents. Yeah. Uh, along with these trickster things. So they had lost. I also think we should point out for people that don't maybe have never been to a farm, that when a cow gets killed, we're talking about something worth about $1,500. Yeah. It's so it's it's a it's a major Their livelihood, yeah. So yeah. just so doing this, whoever did this, if it was a person, is committing a major felony. And if they could have caught a person doing it, he would have been in big trouble. You know, mm -hmm. you could hope he gets arrested, and it wouldn't be worse than that. But they lost, I think, fourteen head of cattle oh in this gosh. short period of time. Gosh. After the, these losses, they have these four big bulls, four bulls, two thousand pound monster behemoths, very expensive animals. They're they had them all in the corral. The rancher and his wife are driving to town for a quick trip. They're going to come back. And they said to each other, it, it feels like they're under surveillance, by the way. They, they feel like somebody's watching them the whole time. But they said to each other, man, if something happens to one of these bulls, we'll go under. That'll be it. Mm. They come back half hour, 45 minutes later, all four of the bulls are gone. And they're freaking out. Where the hell did they go? I mean, there's nobody else on that property. There's only one way in, one way out. Where did these bulls go? He jumps out looking around. In this corral, there's this old white trailer, uh, and it's, they use it to store tools and stuff. It has one door, and the door is secured by heavy metal, uh, heavy wire. That's still on there. The wire's still on there. The door is closed. Rancher's perplexed. He just, on a whim, looks through the grating at the top. There's all four bulls inside this trailer. Now, you could not get these bulls in there with forklifts. You'd, you'd need a, ten, a team of 20 cowboys to force them in there if you could. They're all four in there, squeezed together, and like in a trance, the rancher yells to his wife, here they are. They're alive. They're alive. Okay. He yeah. yells, hey, they're in here. When he makes that sound, the bulls kind of wake up out of this thing, and they start kicking the hell out of the sides. They knock one of the walls out, 
and they got back out into the into the corral. That corral, by the way, had been completely it's metal, it's metal. It had been magnetized by whatever technology was used to make those bulls get in that in that uh, trailer. So a lot of really weird stuff was happening, and it seemed like it was an intelligence that was messing with them uh, on purpose, trying to scare them, trying to get them off the property. What weren't quite sure sure what the agenda was, but it was it was ongoing. Nothing ever happened the same way. So all this stuff is happening. Bigelow flies into the ranch, meets with the rancher, sees they are in dire straits. He buys it on the spot, buys the, buys the property. The rancher took a loss too, by the way. But he talks the rancher into staying on as sort of a foreman. Family wants the hell out of there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rancher wants to know what's behind this. So he sticks around for a couple of months when the NIDS guys come in. And so Bigelow took it, uh, you know, he, he took the approach of let's go in in force. He, he established a headquarters for his team. They put cameras all over the place. And for the next seven years, there was sort of a cone of silence over the ranch as he had his guys on the ranch pretty much 24-7 for months and months at a time. And then the those guys started seeing stuff. It wasn't, it didn't take long for, until they started seeing it with their own eyes. These are PhD level scientists, physicists, biochemists. And, and, Is uh, it the NIDS team? The NIDS then? team. So, so some of the the sort of high profile folks that were at that meeting are going to Skinwalker now to to get to the bottom of this. The Science stuff. Advisory Board, uh, they, some of them did go to the ranch at some point, but they mostly relied on the boots on the ground team. Okay. People like Colum and Eric Davis and John Alexander and others. Uh, those guys, everybody who went to the ranch saw stuff. All of them, and things really got weird. Uh, I don't know how much you want me going into detail on that, but sure, uh, <laughs> we like we're all about weird. Yeah, mm. had you been yet? No. Yeah, I'm hearing this. You're just stuff, hearing it, <laughs> and it's driving me crazy. Yeah, because you know, I mean, you know, I'm friends with Mr. Bigelow and Colum eventually, and and I'm hearing bits and pieces of what they're seeing and what they're experiencing, including some off the wall crazy stuff. I'm thinking, man, I need to go there. I want to see this stuff. Uh, it wasn't until I think 2000 or 2001 when I first made a trip, and it was just by my, me with Mr. Bigelow, and then, and I tried to talk him into us doing a documentary because whatever this thing was, this intelligence, it got tired of being hunted. Where the NIDS guys were there chasing it all the time, trying to establish communication, and a couple of times they thought they were really close. They would they would put games out to see if they could get a reaction from this thing, and and it happened a lot of times. Um, so they were hopeful. And then something, it got tired of the dynamic and it got tired of being hunted and it went underground. And so the level of activity was so low, there wasn't enough to keep them busy. People stopped seeing flying saucers. There were no more cattle mutilations. They had cattle out there specifically as bait and um, and nothing was happening. So I think that's why they eventually let me come in. And uh, I wanted to do a documentary. So I made started making trips with photographers. I was funding it out of my own pocket and uh, taking video and interviewing witnesses and being at the scene of where these things had happened. And uh, after a while, Bigelow changed his mind about it. And so that, that, that plan went away, but I was given access to a lot of material and had a really thorough idea of all the things they'd encountered. And again, it was driving me crazy about uh, it uh, not being able to say it. 2002, I went back to Bigelow and said, hey, let me, let me take another crack at this. I, I won't do a documentary. I won't tell people where the ranch is, but I think we should report this uh, because the level of activity was almost nil at that point. What is what is Bigelow's um, like motive at this point? Is it just private curiosity? Yeah, he wants to know. He just wants to know. Yeah. So he doesn't mm-hmm. want everybody 
coming in and, and snooping no. around, or he doesn't want the government. He just yeah. wants to know. And that's why he was killed the documentary idea. Okay. He didn't want people to be able to figure out where it is, and then UFO nuts take over right. the place, which is exactly what happened. You know, which is exactly what happened after I went public with the story. I, I put a, a wrote a two part piece for Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas Mercury was the name of the newspaper I was a writer for at the time, and and uh, boom, you know, mm-hmm. a phenomenon is born. Yeah, Skinwalker and, Ranch is suddenly on the map. And a lot of the the footage you shot back in those at that time, a lot of that footage years later wound up in Jeremy Corbell's That's right. Yeah. film Hunt for the Skinwalker. Right. I found a way to, to use some of that. Still quite a bit of it that hasn't seen the light of day, yeah. but uh, we'll find a way to use it at some point. I'm, I, you mentioned the games. I read about that in, in the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon as well. What was, you, and they were close. So how would you define it? What, what was the nature of that exchange when they were leaving games out? Like They, well, uh, for example, they had an experiment with jacks where they would position them on a table. Because things would move around. You know, while the NIDS guys mm-hmm. are there, things move around on their own. Uh, so they did an experiment to see, all right, we're going to leave this in a certain array, and we're going to see what happens. And they'd come back and it's all been moved around. Mm-hmm. Um, they had blocks, children's blocks with letters and things like that. They were trying to see if this thing would send a message. And um, they'd be moved around, but no actual words or communication like that. Uh, so, you know, they were hopeful for a long time, and after a while, it changed the rules of the game. You know, nothing ever happened the same way. 146 incidents, something like that, that I have in, in one of their early reports, and nothing was ever the same. Something happens in this location, ah, oh, let's put the cameras over here, right. then it moves over there. Um, you know, there, was, there were a couple of incidents toward the end of the NIDS era that were sort of definitive. They had these cameras up on telephone poles, wide angle lenses, and they'd record 24 hours a day. And they recorded some really interesting things. They don't have a, a clear giant flying saucer or anything, but there were some definite anomalies. Something went up the pole and ripped the guts out of this camera. And uh, it just tore it all up. And tore. they had this heavy wiring and, and, um, and it secured the wiring that goes all the way up the pole. And it ripped all that up too. So they realized, hey, wait a second, we got another camera that should have a look at whatever this right. was. So they go back, they run it back and timed when the camera went out and the other camera, whatever climbed up there was invisible. It just ripped it up and it was invisible. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a, we don't want to be hunted anymore. Did they, but on camera, did they see this, the wiring being ripped I don't up? Think they, or they the just... footage that I have seen is not definitive enough. You know, yeah. you can't tell it's dark, you know, and, um, but you know, they, I've got photos of the the damage that was done afterward. Yeah, there, there was a blue little light, a little tiny, almost like a firefly that was that was detected. Uh, and but what is that? You know. Yeah, and I think it's also it's a point of the uh, for people you know, for skeptics. Uh, so you have a family who basically were having their livelihoods destroyed. They were not. So they're they're not. They're they don't have a profit motive in this. <laughs> They weren't and looking to be celebrities. They've kept their identity secret, right. requested their identity be, be kept secret. So obviously not looking for publicity, not looking for fame, not looking for profit. So they, then you have a man who buys this place and clearly spends all of his own money and also wants to keep it all secret, right. isn't looking for fame, isn't looking for notoriety, isn't looking to exploit this for any kind of profit. Um, and doesn't need it. Yeah. So no, Or want it. Yeah. So there's no, so like the, there's no, 
ulterior motive to all of these things that are happening being made up. Yeah, it's nothing but bad. Yeah, nothing you're not going to bad. For you, why make involved. up stories and then keep them secret? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the NIDS team, they were perplexed. They had no idea. There is no battle plan. There is no plan to follow to study something like this. It is intelligent. It's wily. It's elusive. Uh, whatever the intelligence is that's there, it did not want to be hunted. It liked to play games, but it didn't want anybody closing in on it. Or or understood, right? Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. What, did they have a working hypothesis by the time you're involved with it? No. Any... And, you know, people have said, well, why do you keep all this stuff secret? Well, what were you going to do? Publish what? Uh, you're going to write a paper and get it published in a scientific journal? Who's going to publish that? It will, what is your theory? What's your, what's your overall explanation? Yeah. There isn't one. And is, by its nature, it violates the scientific method of repeatability. Yes, exactly. Nothing ever happened the same. You know, is it aliens? Doesn't seem to act like our idea of aliens. Is it poltergeists? It does a lot of that stuff acts like poltergeists, but what were the craft? You have a ghost flying a craft or some disembodied spirit. Uh, the trickster aspect, you know, that's why the Skinwalker name sort of fit because it's a shapeshifter. And that's what this phenomena was. It changed its shape and its tactics and its actions. It was always something different. Uh, the Native Americans, when I first heard that, Skinwalker, what, what the hell is that? It was Junior Hicks, my, my first trip to the ranch. He said, yeah, up there, that ranch, that, that's the path of the Skinwalker, that's Skinwalker Ridge. I go, Skinwalker? And I started looking into what a Skinwalker was. And it was pretty hard to find it out. You could see oblique references in, in different kinds of periodicals. But Native Americans wouldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I went to a number of different tribes to ask them. No, thanks. They don't want to mention that. They don't want to invoke it. They don't mm -hmm. want it into their lives. But they took it real seriously. And that's their blanket umbrella explanation for all the weird stuff they had seen down in that area over the decades. Wow. What was your first experience there? I mean, did you what was, did you have experiences there? No. You didn't Never have experiences did. Never had there. one. My first trip there, they thought, well, there are certain things that would happen that could stimulate activity. Uh, the arrival of a stranger would mm -hmm. get stuff going. Uh, you know, making a lot of noise out on the on the property and digging. Uh, mm -hmm. The the rancher Gorman, when he had first bought the property, there was a codicil, I think, in the in this the bill of sale that he wasn't supposed to dig, or if he's going to do any heavy digging, he needed to alert the previous owners. He thought, what, what a weird, oh, what's this mm -hmm. weird stuff? All right, fine, you know, they're just crazy old codgers. And then he would see that when you'd start digging and moving earth around, stuff would happen. And um, so when I got there, the arrival of a stranger, I think they thought maybe my inherent weirdness quotient might get something going. We were out on the, on the, in the middle homestead. We built a fire. We made a bunch of noise. And then we got an earth mover and moved a bunch of dirt. Let's see what happens here. And then they put me on a chair in the middle homestead where a lot of bad things had happened at night and left me there to see what happens, you know. And he went a couple hundred yards away. Did they like you? Away. Did you know that? <laughs> he went a couple hundred yards away and we're peering through binoculars and night vision. And I had a, like a Geiger counter and a microphone and, and a flashlight and sitting there on this plastic chair wondering, oh, okay. I, I'm thinking, all right, I wouldn't, I'd like to see a UFO. Yeah. I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm okay with orbs, but there's a couple of other creatures that have been seen there. I'm really not crazy about getting face to face with. And, yeah. Nothing came to get me except for mosquitoes. And all the times I visited, a couple dozen times in the year since, I've never seen anything there. I had one, the first visit, we heard a, a big growl um, that when we, right as we went in the gate. And uh, one time with Jeremy, when Jeremy and Matt Adams and I were there, there was a, a light that appeared in the middle homestead. There is no light there. There's no, there's no electricity, um, but that's it. 
Yeah. Um, but I, things come home with it. people who visit there. Things come home with them. Now, the, the, I was going to say the bill of sale on the property that makes obviously obviously that's put in there because the previous owners had some experiences as well. Did they ever? Did the previous owners ever go on the record with any? any they they have gone on the record and have denied it, all of it. Yeah. Now, look, when they when the Sherm, when the Gormans got there to this property, the there were weird things. There were big uh, stakes where and chains where guard dogs had been posted by the doors inside. The doors and cupboards all had double locks on them and things. It was like to stop them from moving them around yeah. on their own. Something had happened. Well, I'm wondering because if they they're saying if you dig, you need to notify us. Yeah. They must have had some concern that something done on the property could affect them where they were now. Maybe they, you know, that family, the Myers, have denied all the stuff. Now we never yeah. saw any UFOs. I I know that they did. I, I yeah. know they did. And uh, there are police officers that I interviewed that had been called to the property when those folks still lived there, who had had things on the property, had seen things in the skies. Uh, so I know it had been going on there, but it's everywhere in the Uinta Basin, everywhere. Yeah. You know, the, the, the concentration of activity at this ranch might be in part the result of it's been the most intensely studied paranormal UFO yeah. hotspot ever. It's been under constant surveillance uh, by teams since, you know, 1996. So if you had to describe what you think is there, is it, would it be supernatural? Would it be, would it be UAP? I, I mean, if you, if you had to get your arms around it somehow, what do you think it is? Well, it seemed like it was telling us something that all of these different phenomena um, that we perceive to be different phenomena are somehow related, and it's up to us to try to figure it out. So mm -hmm. um, UFOs, orbs, poltergeists, cattle mutilations, crop circles, um, all that Bigfoot, they had Bigfoot type creatures, all of those things are somehow interrelated, and they're all happening in the one spot, and it wants us to figure it out. That's, that's what I thought, yeah. but I don't know what it is. Non-human intelligence, I would say, that's the closest you can get. Um, Jeremy and I just did an interview with a guy named Jules Erbach, who is a expert in virtual reality. Yep, he works with Disney and the government, and you know, and and we got him to talk about where what humans will become centuries from now. We're melding with machines already; it's happening. We're we're going to evolve into something else. And a lot of uh, deep thinkers think that we will eventually be able to upload our consciousness into a computer, become digital beings, um, live forever. Mm -hmm. I think what is there is like invisible. Um, maybe it lives in some other dimension or something, but in this world, it acts with impunity because we can't see it. Yeah, some kind of a dis disembodied consciousness. Yeah, and for some reason, the atmosphere is thin between them and us in that's this a, location. That's mm -hmm. a quote that I've used from the Irish who say, places where the world is thin. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were holes in the sky. Uh, the rancher would see it, a, a hole in the sky. And here it's dusk, over there it's sunlight, and things would fly in and out, craft, and then it, it would close up. The NIDS team, one of the incidents that was so dramatic for them is they, they have two guys on the ground, two guys up on the ridge at night, guys up on the ridge have infrared, and these guys are walking with a couple of dogs in the middle homestead. The guys on the ridge radio to them, walkie-talkie, hey, you're, there's something, you're getting close to something, do you see the, 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 the glowing snowball? So there's a ball of light hovering about two feet off the ground uh, that they, they notice. Uh, these guys can see it better. And up, 
up top uh, with the infrared, they see this ball uh, growing until it becomes a long tunnel, like eight feet long. These guys don't see it. They, they can only see the snowball. Up there, they see this tunnel that forms, and something starts crawling through it. Some, some creature starts wriggling through it, wriggles all the way to the end of this tunnel and stands up. It's like eight feet tall, humanoid shape, black fig features, and it starts going up the hill where these guys are. They're freaking out. I said, we're getting the hell out of here. We're leaving. <laughs> yeah. they, the thing gets out, runs up the hill, and then the tunnel collapses back into snowball again. Um, you know, it, it seems like a dimensional tunnel of some sort. Yeah. It's a, it's a access point to some other reality. And I get, and I guess, and then down the road, I guess the the, the nexus of all of these bizarre, uh, that seemingly separate and discrete bizarre phenomena, becomes the focus of OSAP. Right. So trying to find the what what the cohesion is between all of these weird. Right. So events. Nids uh, Nids goes away. You know, they didn't have enough left to do. Bigelow sort of loses interest. He starts up his Bigelow Aerospace, and that's where his energy and a lot of his money was going. There wasn't enough activity on the ranch to continue the study. He allowed me to write about it because they hoped that maybe by writing about it, other hotspots would come up and they could go investigate those. And they did, by the way. Um, other hotspots around the world? The yeah, nation? around the country. Okay. Around the country. Yeah. So whatever so whatever is behind all of this activity at, at Skinwalker decides it's 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 going out of the it's going out of the business of tormenting scientists and ranchers and so things stop happening at at the ranch and this leads to to Bigelow deciding to shut down nids is that yeah it, it sort of not with a bang but a whimper it kind of just fizzled out mm -hmm. the same year that I came out with the article in the newspaper that's the year that nids sort of ended and uh, and Bigelow was uh, focusing his time and energy and money on the creation of Bigelow Aerospace, um, but he always had an interest in in the activity and what had gone on there, and he still held on to the property. In two thousand five, uh, Colm Kelleher and I talked him into letting us write a book about it. You know, mm -hmm. he's done with it, even though he still owned the property, and he was uh, kind of reluctant, and finally said okay, um, and we published it. Yeah, the name of that book is is Hunt for the Skinwalker, Skinwalker for people as they can find it. It basically told the the story of the ranch and the NIDS investigation and the history of the the Uinta Basin, and uh, Bigelow's fears about what might happen when that news came out proved to be well founded because it got overrun. People started flocking to it, and uh, UFO people they'd go onto the property in the middle of the night. They'd fly, shine flashlights and flash cube cameras in the in the in the windows when the caretakers are on the property. Start taking home souvenirs taken off pieces of this and that, mm. ripped off the signs and the and the front gate, and and just, it was a mess. Um, and he you know, still owns it at the time. He still owned it. We, we took a trip there. I said, well, look, I'll, I'll go there with you. We'll try to chase some of them off, let them know they're not welcome. We took a trip to the ranch. I think it was, must have been 06, maybe, um, and went with him and his chief of security. And Bigelow was going in, he positioned me at the front gate. Um, I was sitting on a chair, I had this um, uh, million candle power spotlight and walkie talkies and was waiting for somebody to show up and I'm going to deal with them. And his chief of security, who was packing uh, heat, he's at the back gate and Bigelow was going back and forth. And I wasn't sitting there 20 minutes before the first group of people shows up and they turn off their lights up at the end of the road and they roll really silently up to the gate. It's three people in, in a truck 
And it's like, you know, it's a date night thing or something. Yeah. People becomes a, an attraction. Go scare your date and, and go to Skinwalker Ranch. And I jump out with this million candle power light and turn it on. And they you can hear them shriek. They jam this truck into, into gear and peel off down the road in reverse. And I was just imagining by the time that story hits the internet or something, it's going to be nine foot tall Bigfoot with a laser beam <laughs> attack my truck. Um, but, you know, the, the die was cast at that point. Um, and Bigelow kept the property and, and had to beef up security. And he started having his security guys from the Bigelow Aerospace go there. And they'd go for seven to ten days at a time and be on the property. And a lot of those guys started having experiences. Most of them had experiences. A lot of them didn't want to go back. Mm -hmm. You know, they, those guys who didn't want to go back didn't. Some of them took to it and seemed to enjoy their part of it. And Bigelow would ask them to keep an eye on things and tell them what, what he saw. So there were still some reports trickling in. We wrote the book in 2005. It's a little bit of a sensation, I guess, in UFO world and paranormal world. You know, the, the Bigfoot people hate the UFO people, the ghost people. <laughs> Hundred people hate all those folks. They don't get along, and here we are mixing and matching yeah. everything mm -hmm. in a big pot of stew, and nobody's comfortable with it. Least alone scientists. The team that has studied this stuff has no idea what this is. They don't know how to explain it. You know, no, nobody's really proud of saying that there's poltergeist type activity and we're investigating it. Who wants to put their name on that? You know, um, so, but somebody did. Somebody at the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, read the book. Uh, his name is Dr. Jim Lukatsky. He read it and was interested. He really was interested in the stuff about a hole in the sky and craft coming in and out. He shared it with a colleague of his named Jay Stratton, who had taken the book to Iraq. They had it in, in the green zone. They passed around the pool among American uh, intelligence folks there. And it had a little following in, in those circles. Lukatsky decides to reach out to Bigelow. He asks his bosses at DIA, hey, is this something we'd be interested in? And they said, yeah, go ahead. So he asks, reached out to Bigelow to um, see if he could visit the property. Bigelow says, come on out. I'll take you there myself. And he did. He flies out to Las, to Las Vegas. Bigelow jumps on his jet. They go to the ranch. And within 45 minutes of Lukatsky being on the property, he had an experience, something that seemed designed for only him to see. Uh, he's in. He's in the you want me to go into this? No, yeah. I, well, I, well, maybe this is a good time. <laughs> okay, maybe this is a good time to pause. Yes, okay. yes, because well, I think what you're you're bringing us up to the next sort of big chapter in the the, the modern history of the UFO story. Yeah, the yeah the study of the ranch by NIDS leads to all the stuff that's unfolding now. Yeah, well, the study your book leads to Lukatsky and Stratton who launch what becomes the a next big phase of Skinwalker and not just Skinwalker, but in the study of UFOs, which is the OSAP program. OSAP. Yep. So I think let's we'll come back so, to that. So yeah, here we mm -hmm. are now. This is uh, this will conclude part two of our incredible conversation with uh, Mr. George Knapp. And uh, come see us for part three, because we're going to get into the whole modern era. We'll talk David Grush. We're going to talk OSAP. Uh, we're going to get into all that stuff, whistleblowers. So we will see you then. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.